Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am joined by my glorious, wonderful, convivial, talented, <laughs> brilliant co-hosts, um, uh, Harvey Young of Boston University. Hi, Harvey. It's been a long time since I saw you. Oh, when I ran into you at the Met Opera in the lobby. Uh, that is true. Yeah. Um, how, how was the rest of your winter break? It was great. It was my first really long winter break, you know, going from quarters to semesters. So uh, it was luxurious having so many weeks. Yeah. I have had like a month off and then our last, our, our first week of uh, classes was last week. And then we had the three day weekend and I still feel like I'm not really in it yet. You know, I feel like I'm still not ready. And I'm joined by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Sarah, I have stepped away from Twitter for for the year, or for at least an indefinite period of time. Um, so I feel like I don't know what's going on with you. You're well, not I, on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. I what's haven't been doing much on Twitter either. So, so, um, but the answer to that is like, really nothing has been going on with me. I, I you know, <laughs> except for surviving the snowpocalypse, uh, you know, the inaugural snowpocalypse of 2019. So. All is good. It's all it's all it's all happy with me. That's good. All good. All happy. 2019. Back for more podcasting. We've got some great topics we believe to to, to discuss with you. We read Michelle Carriger's article in the New Theater Survey entitled "Maiden's Armor: Global Gothic Lolita Fashion Communities and Technologies of Girly Counter Identity." Great title. Um, we read up on the story about Fortnite, the floss, and intangible intellectual property. Basically, the creators of the video game Fortnite are accused of stealing people's original dance moves and then selling them on their mega popular video game platform. What does this mean for choreography, um, critical perspectives on the history of of choreography and copyright um, and for any dances that we might make up and go viral. That we being a very hypothetical we. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm imagining right now the podcast somehow inventing its own original dance move that would be worth uh, uh, anything. That's the way we can ultimately allow this thing to cross over. I, I've always said this pos- this podcast has zero crossover potential, but if one of us comes up with a viral dance move, then all bets are off. Incentives <laughs> to attend the next live 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 recording. Indeed. Um, and finally, we're going to talk about uh, the published play script. This is really occasioned by the, the much-reported closure of the 40th Street location of the Drama Bookshop in New York City, which I believe that location closed on Sunday, um, though there's a another... Uh, thread to the story about the future of that bookstore. But that got us thinking about the physical medium of the printed play um, and how it plays into our professional lives. We will have drafts. But before we get to those topics, uh, a fair amount of news items to round up. We have not recorded in in quite a while, so a lot has happened. Um, I wanted to mention first off that uh, John Muse's book, Microdramas, won the George Jean Nathan Award for Dramatic Criticism, uh, a very uh, prestigious award for a, a great book. Congratulations, John. Um, in the same vein, my colleague, Joanna D. Doss, won the Dance Studies Association's De La Torre Bueno First Book Award for her book, Catherine Dunham, uh, Dance and the African Diaspora from Oxford in 2017. Joanna is my uh, cherished colleague here at WashU in the Performing Arts Department. Her office is right down the hall, and we were thrilled that she won that, that award from the, from the DSA uh, for her fabulous, fabulous book. The call for Aster's 2019 conference is out, has been out for a few weeks, and the deadline for submissions for plenary papers, curated panels, state of the field forums, and working sessions is February 1st. So listeners, get your proposals in by February 1st. Uh, Full disclosure, I think I've already disclosed this. I'm on the... 
I'm one of the co-chairs of the conference planning committee, and we're very excited about this. Because of the way that Aster 2018 unfolded, we released the official call a little bit later than it normally is. Normally, that call goes out in, in mid-December, and we waited a couple weeks to get our ducks in a row and released it at the very beginning of this month. But proposals are coming in, and you should check out the CFP and definitely, definitely submit a session, a plenary paper. It's going to be a great big fat aster. <laughs> it <laughs> looks a... great. It looks really, it, the call looks great, panel. Thank very you very exciting. much. And, and who are the other chairs? Um, that's Charlotte Canning, Caritha Mitchell, and Brian Herrera. Oh, good and, people. And myself. Good Thank people you. All yes. Around. We were, I was excited to get in a boat with those three people and, and plan uh, a big old aster conference. Other news, um, a company called Concord is acquiring Samuel French. This news story came out, I think, a week or so ago. Samuel French is the 188-year-old publisher and licensor of play scripts. The name will not be unfamiliar to anyone who does theater or drama. Um, as far as I know, Samuel French and Dramatists Play Service are the two big play licensors and publishers. Um, and Concord is a conglomerate of, I think, largely in the music licensing business, but they're acquiring Samuel French, which may have some ramifications for people in professional theater. Um, also has, you know, I suppose, some ramifications for our third topic. And finally, uh, I just wanted to remind listeners that Noe Montez posted on Twitter and Facebook another one of his digests of recent research on the job market, and he drew attention to the high failure rate of theater and performance studies tenure track job searches in the last cycle, um, and the failure rate being um, you know, failure to actually make a hire from the search. So uh, I, I recommend looking that up and checking that out. Unfortunately, that is a phenomenon that exacerbates what's already a tough job market for theater and performance studies PhD students. But as usual, Noe is on point and, and sharing a ton of information about what's going on in our field and especially the job market conditions. So for our first topic, we read Michelle Carriger's article, Maiden's Armor, um, a very evocative photograph on the on the cover of the new edition of Theater Survey. Um, there's a lot to say about this article. Um, uh, she examines the fashion community, international fashion community rooted in Japan, known as Gothic, Gothic Lolitas. Um, and... It's a really, I mean, I, I'm curious to know what you guys think about it. Sarah, I'll ask you about this in a minute. But I, I was just struck in the first place by what a rich sort of um, thick description of this phenomenon Carragher uh, uh, offers. It reminded me of uh, Moria Wickstrom's excellent chapter on the American girl doll phenomena um, uh, that I read years ago and, and used to teach. Um, and so there's a whole lot going on in this article on a really fantastic uh, and, and interesting performance phenomenon. Um, Sarah, what, do you, what did you think about this article? What questions did it raise for you? So I, well, I, I really enjoyed the, the, the essay. I mean, part of me, it, it was interesting. When I, when I sort of started reading it, I, I, I think I initially and erroneously uh, thought of it as something rather specific. And, it, and there's a kind of wonderful way in which uh, Carragher digs deeply and then broadens it out and, and draws all kinds of really interesting connections. Um, I think one of the things that that struck me in the in in the in the writing particularly is this idea of um, the tension between an authentic and a performative self and the ways in which the the dressing up as a, as a quote unquote real Lolita right so the idea that somehow there's a certain kind of external presentation that communicates an, an authentic self versus one that is that is distinguished from cosplay or, or play acting and, uh, you know, taking on the, uh, another self on top of it. And, so, and the way that, that Carragher kind of sifts through that in the context of, of, of Japanese street style and, and Harajuku, and then also connects that to notions of, of the European and the history of Gothic and the, the textual intersections, of course, with um, you know Nabokov's Lolita and the ways in which the Lolita community is both separate from and and moving away from those associations, but also also intimately tied to them. I mean, there are just a ton of really interesting things uh, going on in the in, in the article. I think one of the 
the other kind of fun things to to note is the is the way in which Carragher looks at different mechanisms as technologies. So we have a technologies of clothing, we have a technologies of fashion, but then also how those circulate through the internet and social media. And so there's there's also um, a way of, of reading this performance um, and its kind of uh, circulation as such uh, through a number of different kind of modes and mechanisms that I found just really compelling and and uh and 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 super readable i mean it's just it, it's an incredibly engaging um article that that pulls you in and does a, a number of, of of really interesting things what did what did you guys think of it what struck you um i i picked up on similar things i thought there, there's a lot of tensions that she explores in this um the tension between authenticity or realness she doesn't use the term realness which it, is something i remember from um you know drag ball culture um though that's one of the many points of comparison that i thought of in reading this you know goth culture um uh, uh ballroom culture cosplay, etc. There's a tension between, you know, one's um, expression of one's quote-unquote true self in these uh, meticulously assembled um, outfits and um, a kind of costume culture that might be, you know, disposable or, or dispositive. And then there's also the tension about the, I guess what it means in terms of the uh, sexual expression or the sexuality of the, of the performer, especially as imposed from the outside, um, not knowing much about this subculture and having seen, now I realize having read Carragher, having, you know, seen uh, outfits like this in sort of, you know, anime or video game characters, um, I, I had always thought of it as a kind of, I don't know, juvenizing or, I don't know, sort of male gaze phenomenon. But Carragher's very apt in demonstrating that this is actually a sort of self-generated um, uh, phenomenon by the young women and men and, and people of all genders who do it. So I thought that was really enlightening. Um, so there's there's a lot going on in there that I thought was really interesting. I, I will say this, and then I'll throw it to Harvey. I Reading along, I, I kept thinking, oh, this must be an internet phenomenon, <laughs> like a lot of cosplay or other kind of sub I don't know, 21st century subcultures that thrive on the easy sorting and sharing of high quality images. This must, must be something that rose with the growth of the internet. But in fact, and this is a spoiler alert for the article, she reveals in the end that this that this phenomenon is on its way out. Um, the major journals and, and websites, I believe, that have pervaded this culture are closing down. And really, when you look at the chronology, it doesn't make sense to understand it as something that arose with the internet. It, it, it came before the internet, and then it is dying now. Um, so lots of surprises in there. What did you think, Harvey? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, certainly coming into this uh, piece and approaching the article, I, I never actually heard of Gothic Lolita, Lolitas before. Uh, so it's it was eye-opening in many ways. Uh, but I think what Michelle does uh, wonderfully with this piece is she does a few things. First, she is extraordinary in how she outlines her methodology, right? And she talks about how she first became aware of Gothic Lolitas, you know, how she became in, in, enamored as a scholar, you know, you know, and wanting to know more and more. So sort of subscribing to buying the magazines, sort of going back to Japan and, and purchasing um, uh, more, uh, more issues uh, and then diving deeply. And I think that what happens is that as she reveals her process and her fascination, you as a reader get hooked, right? Uh, and what the piece does is it... And here's where I agree with both you, panel, and Sarah. It's it's kind of like one door leads to another door in many unexpected ways, right? So it's everything from, um, you know, looking at representational politics within Japan and, you know, wanting to actually uh, identify a depth, an historical depth to it that isn't sort of emptied of meaning, you know, which is something that's a great, it's a great critique and intervention that she makes. Um, I think there's a way in which uh, she's looking at how... Uh, Gothic Lolita culture, you know, then sort of appears everywhere, um, and which makes me feel totally out of date because I was like, I never heard of this before, and it's on its way out. But I'm like, and I missed it entirely, you know. But how it then began to sort of change the way in which you think about sort of public photography and in terms of fashion spreads, um, how it makes appearances within uh, video game culture, you know, how it is an internet uh, phenomenon for a while, uh, you know. So you can look at this this performance based embodied representational. Um, style and see 
you know, an intervention uh, that actually talks about Japanese history. Um, you, you can look at this style and actually see how it has, uh, you know, a level of depth that actually sort of transforms international culture that needs to be attributed to, um, you know, its emergence out of a subcultural um, community, you know, that actually reaches a much broader, more general audience. So I thought it was extraordinary. Just for, for people listening, I, and I, I would encourage everyone to, to read the essay because it's, uh, as panel and Harvey say, it's, it's incredibly engr- engrossing. Um, but just real quick to define the Gothic Lolita, because um, so, so this is a, a, a style of, of, of dressing. In fact, I think the first line in the essay is, yes, is it starts with a dress or dresses um, and sort of characterized by excessive ruffles and I believe poofy is a word that appears a couple of times in the in the essay um, uh, overwhelmingly Gothic Lolita is overwhelmingly young women in their teens and 20s and overwhelmingly girly in their outsized bows platform Mary Jane shoes and petticoated skirts so there's this this play between Japan and, and a kind of right Gothic um, uh, European kind of notion of excess in, in style um, and what's really interesting, just to speak to, to Harvey's point, there's a great uh, framing early on um, in terms of history um, where Carragher talks about uh, the Lolita um, as a creative response to Asian postcoloniality, which she then um, parenthetically, and it's, a, it's, a paren- it's probably like the most important parentheses, parenthetical phrase I've read in a long time, um, uh, she says, parenthetically, by which I mean both Japan's semi-subjugated status to Western powers in the 19th and post-World War II, 19th century and post-World War II, and emphasized its foray into colonizing neighboring Asian nations in the early uh, 20th century. So, I mean, I think the 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 ability to l- look at this phenomenon in in a, a in such a nuanced and complex way in terms of of, of the post-colonial and and the, and Japan is a really interesting. Uh, national power in terms of its uh, its you know its subju- semi subjugated status, but also in in what it's done in other neighboring countries. I think you know just raises all kinds of interesting things. Um, the last thing that and I just uh, as I had a note kind of towards the end of the essay where she's talking about kind of the upshot of the of the article and and how we might help us think through is it occurs to me that she really has provided a way to think through femininity. Um, uh, without gender, um, which I found really, really interesting, right? Because she has sort of systematically built an argument in which the the, the tropes of femininity and the and the icons of femininity um, steadily migrate across different bodies and eventually inc- incorporate um, trans adherents and participants, and and so one of her kind of concluding ideas is, she says, uh, what if we accepted that a femininity that appears to most of us as excessive, theatrical, and out of place in time, in fact, feels true and pleasurable to its adherents, no matter what their chromosomal makeup or professed gender identity. And so I, I, I think it's a really sophisticated and pretty outstanding move to be able to build an argument that essentially, that, that, that makes that, that argument as cleanly and as, and as clearly as Carragher does. So it's, it's, it's really just such an, an engaging piece, um, d- delightful. And then it leads to endless interest um, internet searches if you're looking to procrastinate. <laughs> um, that's a hypothetical, uh, of course. I, yeah, I, I think it's clear we all really love the article. I, I was gonna touch on something that Harvey said about the explanation of the methodology. This is something that I, I think is a characteristic of the way um, Carragher works. And I'm thinking also about her um, Aster plenary a couple of years ago about cultural appropriation and the phenomenon of Westerners uh, wearing kimonos and going to art museums, where she takes these topics that you could easily see a temptation to polemicize or to try to construct the argument ahead of time in order to get to a place where you want to go to critique something or an, or other. And what I think is really impressive about this and other work of hers is that she has this kind of cool and sober procedure where she walks you into an intellectual engagement with an object that many lesser scholars would sort of be detoured by one or another feature of it and be content with a, a, you know, more superficial argument. And she does this, I think, to sort of 
give credit to phenomena that I think she has selected as being really important and interesting and then to really honor the humanity of the people participating in them. But she also doesn't fall in love. Do you know what I mean? She doesn't sort of embrace this phenomenon as some sort of um, utopian liberatory feminist expression, though she very much explores how the participants in this um, uh, are offering a kind of resistance. I think she calls it a kind of weak resistance to social pressures to perform gender in one or another way. Um, it's, you know, it's, a, it's an excellent example of um, uh, careful, honest, clear thought and, and exploration. So I thought that was fantastic. Is there anything bad we can say about this? I mean, come on. That's not what we're here to do. <laughs> we're usually so so cutting and critical in our assessments no, of things yeah, we bring on the podcast. We're always ripping people down. I'll okay. say this. There was one area of this that I, I wanted to see <laughs> wanted to see more explored. Oh, come on. That's fair. Um, there's there's something in the and, – and, and I this may or may not be part of a, her um, – uh, book project. I, th- I think it is. Um, but there's something interesting about the location of the historical reference, um, the Gothic, the Victorian, right? Um, and then also here and there, there's references to the Rococo and to the 18th century. And that, of course, you know, sent my 18th century studies antenna up. There's something about the way that this phenomenon is understood as both being a kind of stylized revival of Victorian styles, but also of the 18th century and figures like Madame Boucher or, or, um, or pardon, pardon me, uh, Madame du Pompadour um, uh, or um, Marie Antoinette. There's some sort of, there's something in common among those reference and there's a kind of luxury culture and a kind of, you know, um, I want to say fetishization of or obsession with the the luxury clothing item that I think might be part of the constellation of reference that, that, that are part of this. So it only made me want to know more about the phenomenon. That's not a knock on the article. <laughs> At any rate, we loved Michelle's article. Go check it out in the new theater survey. Indeed, which is a great, I mean, you know, beyond uh, characters, right? This is a, a whole issue. I believe it's Marley Schweitzer's first as editor following um, Nick Wrightout's tenure. Um, but it is in, is it, am I right? Is it entirely dedicated to notions of girlhood? Right, to, uh, to questions of girl? Yes. Yeah, so the whole, the whole um, issue is, um, is I thought I remembered that correctly. Um, is is focused on on articles that that deal with uh, questions of, of of girl and girlhood, um, which is of course is something that that Schweitzer has dealt with in in other uh, essays and, and articles as well. So anyway, it's a great it's a great. I haven't read the whole thing yet. I've been sort of dipping in and out of it, but it's a great great issue. Indeed. Well, let's move on to our next topic. We saw on the New York Times uh, a fascinating article about Fortnite, the um, mega popular networked battle royale video game, and its appropriation of dance moves, very specific dance moves, including the floss. Um, uh, Harvey, I did not check in with you about this. Harvey and I, by total coincidence, (laughs) both saw the magic flute at the Met, ran into each other in New York, very exciting. I was lucky enough, thanks to Harvey's generosity, to go backstage and meet the director of this production, um, um, not Julie Taymor, but the the director of this revival that the Met um, stages every year. I remember mentioning to him in passing contemporary, uh, like a, like a bit of an update to the performance, which he disavowed. But what I was thinking of was the floss. There's a minute in the Met production of The Magic Flute. Maybe five seconds. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, less than that, where one of the characters, I'm forgetting the name, um, uh, does a a quick rendition of The Floss, which Julie Taymor could not have created nine years ago, or staged nine years ago. At any rate, quick quick callback to um, a special moment that Harvey and I shared. Um, But at any rate, uh, Fortnite has been appropriating moves, dance moves like the floss, like apparently the Carlton. Um, uh, And Fortnite characters do these dances. They're very recognizable. Um, And they 
charge players um, an in-game purchase in some cases to buy these moves and put them on their avatar. So this got us thinking of all sorts of relevant issues, obviously, in our field. Um, it got me thinking about Anthea Kraut's recent book, Choreographing Copyright, which won the Atha Outstanding Book Prize uh, for, for the year um, 2016 when it was published. Um, Kraut chronicles in that book the way that in the 20th century, um, American choreographers increasingly made claims to their choreographic creations. And she points out the way that this was a sort of strategy that that women, white women used in certain ways, that, that choreographers of color used in certain ways, and in contrasting ways that I won't get into, um, often choreographers were trying to, according to Kraut's argument, essentially become subjects, subjects of property rights, right, as, a pro, as opposed to uh, commodity objects, the way that dancers and their creations are, are apt to um, be interpreted. So this I thought was fascinating. Here we have basically the same issue. What is the intellectual property status of choreography, but transmitted into this strange new performative um, medium of the networked interactive video game? Um, so I don't know. What what did you what do you guys think? I guess the question here would be: Does this particular situation, the fact that the the avatars are in an interactive game that it's all digital that there's not even necessarily motion capture though maybe there is um does this complicate in any way what we would be apt to think about the ownership of a dance move like the floss well it's interesting because the 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 question is really what whether whether the thing created is the thing that is owned or the thing that is uh received Right as as the thing that is that is owned because of course, in in the game, the floss itself like that dance doesn't exist because there are no bodies that exist. Right there are there are bits of code that are written uh, and that are drawn to emulate any number of of things that have you know um, real life reference. It happens that there right so in some ways like the object in question is 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 you know a specific you know piece of of software and code writing that ge but it generates the effect of uh of the dance right in a way that is referential to an actual dance that is fairly distinctive what's also interesting is that i don't remember the the kid who came up with the dance objecting when nfl players <laughs> were doing the dance on the sidelines although ostensibly in the kind of you know immaterial culture the ability or you know to do that to do that dance like drew more attention to those players and therefore increased their own right value to the institutions um and the corporations that they were a part of right so like mm -hmm. you know it's it's great to score a touchdown it's even better to score a touchdown and then do this dance that becomes recognizable and then becomes you know part of the espn highlight film and circulates it just it, it accrues capital to to that gesture and i don't remember the kid being upset or anyone objecting to that kind of uh, mm -hmm. a performance echo, and in fact, you know, really enjoying it because, of course, it amplified his own performance across across media and 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 drew kind of connection back to it. So it, it seems to me that the real issue is is when it gets turned into something else that can be then uh, sold. But of course, what it gets turned into is not a dance that is sold. It's the perception of a dance that is sold. What has actually been created is is a bit of code. So I don't know how this is 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 going to play out. I think it raises some really interesting and pretty thorny copyright issues in terms of what what is the what is the thing that we're looking at in question, which is a little bit different from the stuff that that Anthea Crowd is talking about because she's really talking about performances absorbing performances and circulating in in similar kinds of moves. And here it seems like video games make a uh, a, 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 a slight detour from that that um, that puts it actually in a, in a totally different context, at least for me. Although I, I, for me, I wonder if the issue centers around the capacity to interpret in a new way. Hmm. Um, so uh, if the NFL player is you know, doing the floss or whatever else, uh, then you know that is a maybe a live performer in that moment making it, sort of choosing to adapt uh, a piece, you know, but when you have a person writing code, 
and then trying to write the code that replicates someone else's actual performance, you know, it seems like it's more of a match than an interpretation. You know, so it seems to me that that's where, you know, it could it could move into the copyright issue uh, because it's it depends. I guess it depends. I guess you could say that like if the person imagines an avatar as having the capacity to then interpret independently, <laughs> you know, but the person's trying to you know one for one recreate you know, the kid, uh, the backpack kid and the floss, you know, on the screen, just using that avatar, it's a little bit different, you know. So I think of it as being uh, there's less space for variation, you know, when the goal is to write a code that matches the original performance. So essentially what you're saying, Harvey, is that you're, you're agreeing with Sarah that the the distinction between the media of a dancing human body and a no matter how complex and accurate digital creation it has that th- that's significant and that perhaps harvey if i'm understanding the fact that it is a human being in a moment of their own creative expression even if they're imitating or interpreting another dance that would make the nfl touchdown celebration a kind of something that belongs to that performer in some way but you couldn't cross apply that to Fortnite. is that right yes Okay. Well, my thought to Sarah's initial objection, and, and Sarah, as a parenthesis, I always ha- I love it when on the podcast you will revert to these kind of uh, uh, these these arguments. I don't tend to associate with you, like the fact of the human performer's body is this is the bright line. Um, <laughs> I think of you as being so open to these expansive understandings of performers and digital media, um, but I, I do love it when when your I don't know conservatism comes out on these issues. Um, I, I, I try to keep it I try to keep it interesting. You know, I'm just I'm just here trying to try to like you know surprise panel when I can't. That's right. That's right. I'm, I'm, I remain a woman of mystery. What can well, I tell let me you? T- let me argue for the, for the sake of argument, let me Fair. offer a contrary interpretation, which is that one, the, the fact of it being digital or bits of code isn't really distinguishable from any other non-human medium. So that if you created a robot that did the dance, or if you created a puppet show that did the floss, you would have the same issue of, of, I don't know, intellectual property on in a, on a, in a sort of common sense basis, as far as I'm concerned. The And if you, you could imagine, I don't know, any sort of proprietary dance um, entertainment um, being, I don't know, the, the a bit of Fosse choreography, right? You could imagine someone making a puppet show of that exact choreography and then trying to sell tickets to it. That would, to me, that would be an obvious intellectual property issue um, and no different in my mind in, in, uh, as far, in terms of it being digital as it is in Fortnite. And then secondarily, I think you can argue that the player's identification with the on-screen avatar has a kind of sympathetic transmission. I mean, you can see players of all ages, you know, jumping up and dancing and imitating their on-screen avatar. I'd argue that the there is a kind of transmission, a sort of triangular transmission back to the player in some cases. Um, whether or not that means it's property, I'm not sure. But to my mind, the distinction between a video game or other dance media isn't really significant here. Oh, gosh. I, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I think that the I think I think there is a distinction, and I'm not I'm not exactly sure how I feel in this particular issue. Um, you know whether whether there's a case or or not to be made. I think what I'm what I'm sensitive to is that um, is that in other is like there's there's a kind of distillation in that the in this instance the exact dance can be sold as opposed to the dance being part of part of another performance, right? So it's not like the floss is. Mm-hmm is in a in a puppet show or mm-hmm. or that is part of a robot that you would buy that has this feature it's a very specific um token right like there's this element that is at root i would i, I would presume like you know a specific bit of code added to the game that generates these movements and i think it's precisely because of the what you're talking about panel the kind of sympathetic relationship and and an understanding of uh, an extension of self in the avatar that you know that what one does in in life or what one aspires to 
um, in in real life, there's a kind of fantasy wish fulfillment that that the avatar can kind of take on. So the idea of doing silly things, and besides, it's really I mean, like the Carlton like showed up in things like you know Call of Duty, right? It was really funny to see the the incongruity there. I think became really like pleasurable to consume. But but in this instance, like it's not your con- you're you're actually able to buy the performance, and it is it is really specific into that into that thing, and it and this kind of this ability to purchase it and have it be exact onto a, a replica within that space um, is distinct from other kinds of choreographic mm-hmm. appropriation or plagiarism. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking like the, you know, the De Kersmacher, Beyonce, Countdown, you know, Rosas Dance Rosas debacle, you know, that, that, that Kraut writes about it the, in the coda to the to her book, and so I don't know, I, I, but I think there's I think there's something very specific about about this, and I can see why. I, I mean, I can see why an argument could go could go either way. I'll be very curious to see how how well you know smarter legal minds than me um, <laughs> can can kind of suss that out, you know, and what what's what what uh, what language there is in in the law to kind of you know figure out what it, what what is what is a digital dance. Yeah. I mean, what they, I thought, sorry, go for a panel. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they mentioned some of the standards according to the existing law on these issues, and they're they're sort of arbitrary criteria like creativity. Is it super creative? Um, is it complex? Like you can't. The article mentions that you can't copyright a short step. Like no one can copyright, I'd say, the the box step or something. Um, but it also mentions that there's an exemption for social dance, and I think that. You know the the phenom- what you mentioned earlier, Sarah. I think is a part of this, which is that um, Russell Horning, aka the Backpack Kid, he was psyched to go on Ellen and to go viral on YouTube and to sort of give this thing away as a social thing in order to get some fame and attention, which can be monetized. Um, so it's different from a kind of prestigious choreographer creating a work. Uh, where people purchase tickets to see it versus the, you know, according to, um, I guess, some legal precedent, as opposed to a sort of dance like The Running Man that someone somewhere invented and then got copied a billion times in different everyday life settings. Harvey, what were you going to? Yeah, I was going to say that what I found interesting about the article um, you know, was a, a kind of a throwaway comment uh, from one of the lawyers interviewed uh, in, in response to the question, why are there so few copyright cases you know, involving choreography? Uh, the lawyer responded that, it, that there's not much money <laughs> to be made in the arts and that uh, because artists are often quite, I guess, impoverished essentially, that people are not racing, you know, to lawyers to uh, sort of sue for copyright infringement, which then made me think, about how sort of the arts have this sense of being for the public, you know, without there being much of a cost attached to it to be shared, to be to be made available for everyone, uh, and that within that framework, it's allowing a structure to exist in which sort of monetizing impulses, you know, can actually allow um, a person to own the work of others potentially, uh, or to. Um, you know, willfully disregard the authority uh, and the authorship of that other individual. You know, so I, I was thinking of that. And then, and then another thought I had um, was: uh, Did you see the adaptation, the film adaptation of Ready Player One, directed by Steven Spielberg? Yeah, I haven't seen this. Because you know, there, there, there are a number of fascinating moments with avatars in that. Uh, but in one of them, there is a dance scene. You know, where uh, one of the characters. I guess, you know, sort of pays for the upgrade and then can do the Saturday Night uh, uh, Fever John Travolta dance. And it made me wonder, in, in the context of this conversation, like, who was compensated for that? Uh, I mean, certainly, you know, I'm sure that there was money being paid to the producers of that film starring Travolta. You know, but I wonder if the initial choreographer um, had any claims to that. And if you think about this article in, in specific, you, it notes that Alfonso Ribeiro, you know, who played Carlton, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, was one of the plaintiffs, you know, sort of suing over the Carlton dance. It made yeah. me wonder, like, you know, does John Travolta, you know, have any sort of say or stake in, uh, in the uh, performance of a move that he is identified with or was at one point in time? Today, you know, so I, I'm going to like race to look at the credits of Ready Player One to see, you know, what gets credited and what does not in light of this conversation. 
yeah, there's a ton of uh, copyrighted material reproduced in Ready Player One, and I, one imagines because it was Steven Spielberg that they were able to get good deals on all of this stuff. I had the same reaction to the bit about uh, Alfonso Ribeiro, aka Carlton. Like, how could it possibly be that he didn't sign away his rights to his performance in The Fresh Prince as part of whatever compensation he was given for The Fresh Prince? I mean, that's an that's a fascinating question. I don't think actors usually get a lot of the back end of their performance, certainly as, as royalty. I mean, he would he would have royalties for the rebroadcast of episodes of that show. But how could he have intellectual property over a, a dance that he created on that show? That that's that was surprising. Well, this me. is oh. the interesting thing that's happening right now with the whole actor lab um uh, equity debate um, in terms of works in development on Broadway and and performers being compensated for the contributions that they make to works in progress. Um, and it seems to me that this would would fall very much under a kind of similar um, idea, right? Which which you know we can look at things like you know like improv <laughs> and and specific acting choices that become. You know, again, in in in, I think that are distinctly like informed by media, right? That's not to say that these kinds of things didn't come before that, as as you know, various scholars have pointed out. But there's something about the ability to freeze, watch, recycle, re-perform, recirculate, and the and the audience for for mass media is 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 so different that you're seeing these things come up in in different aspects. I think the the, the question of this in terms of video games and video games in and as performance, I think are really uh, is is just now kind of, I would say in the past few years, really starting to, to take off. And and so we'll see hopefully, you know, more argument around that. Indeed. So we also wanted to talk on this edition of the podcast about the, the object, the unique object, the printed play script. Um, This is spurred to our mind by this uh, story about the drama bookshop, its location on West 40th Street in New York City, closing, I believe that it closed on on Sunday, January 20th. Um, So that's an iconic spot for theater people and and theater scholars in in New York City. Um, That location has closed, but at the last minute, it was announced that the bookstore itself has been rescued. It's been purchased by Lin-Manuel Marie and three of his Hamilton collaborators. Um, uh, And so they have plans to reopen it in another location. Factors cited in the closing of the drama bookshop will be familiar. Apparently the rent on that space was due to go up by 50%. And so it's in in a certain sense, it's just another um, beloved uh, business in New York closing down and to be replaced by, I'm sure, a you know, HSBC branch or something like that. <laughs> um, but it, it, it actually got us thinking more about drama <laughs> books. I noticed that um, uh, there's another uh, uh, bookshop that's closed recently. Um, uh, Gina Gianfrido, the playwright, posted on on Facebook last week lamenting, lamenting the close of Westsider Books on the Upper West Side, which, according to her account, had or has a, a big collection of used play scripts that was very important to her when she was quote, a broke young writer. Um, and here's another independent bookstore that that's closing. Um, but this all got us thinking not so much about the closing of these bookstores, but about the, the broader um, status of the paper play script. Um, plays are published in editions to be read, but they're also published in editions to be used in performance, held by actors, read around the table. Um, uh, published plays are experiencing the same shifts of uh, digitization of reading material that other printed materials are, but there seem to be you know unique features and uh, characteristics in the marketplace around paper play scripts. So um, I guess I wonder what you guys think about I don't know the the printed play is it on its way out? Harvey, do you think that play scripts um, bound paper play scripts are going to hang around longer than paper books? No, no, I don't. <laughs> I, do, I do not. Uh, in part because if you think about uh, many people's experience with the printed play within production, uh, they're often photocopied you know, with large margins uh, uh, 
included in order for a person to be able to write uh, notes and blocking and those sort of things. Uh, there are fewer and fewer people who actually sit around sort of reading plays. Uh, I mean, TCG continues to, to publish plays. Northwestern University Press has done a great job in terms of producing plays uh, for the market. Um, you know, but I feel like there is a limited audience you know, for people who are actually actively looking to read plays. And I know this from uh, having conversations with acquisition editors, you know, in terms of talking with, you know, potential plays that I would like to see in print and, you know, realizing what the market factors are and what the audience is. And yes, I would like to read this play by a playwright, uh, but then sometimes the playwright or playwright's agent, you know, insists that there's a multiple play, co you know, uh, commitment. And you know most presses want to see how one play will perform, and not sort of have these sort of long-term associations with a single playwright. You know, so that's my thought in terms of the the future of publishing plays. Uh, one more thing I want to say about the Drama Bookshop. I was there whenever I've been New York. I stopped by, and, and I will admit, and, I, and this comes from a theater historian, theater scholar. I've always been underwhelmed by that space. I mean, you walk in and. You know, there's a lack of plays relating to sorry, there's lack of books relating to dramatic criticism. You know, I'm looking, I'm, I'm like, where's my theater history? Where's my theater criticism? Like, if it's not the drama bookstore, where <laughs> will I find it? Uh, I would look at the shelves and see, you know, lots and lots of titles, uh, often produced by Samuel French uh, or New Dramatist, and I'd actually want to see the more reader-friendly version, not the in-rehearsal version for, for it. Uh, so, to be, I, I feel bad saying this, but. You know, if it was a place that wasn't committed to uh, having all the offerings related to theater scholarship out there or theater criticism, I'm totally fine with it closing. Um, you know, I prefer the bookstore at the National Theater, for example, which has a great balance between plays and criticism and history. But the drama bookstore never had that for me. But those are my thoughts. What, what do you think, Sarah? Panel. Well, I'm. I'm. So I've been thinking about this from a couple of different modes. Right. One is that. Um, I think back to, you know, I don't know, probably like 20 years or more where like we where the end of paper was foretold. Right. And um, and the computer was going to eliminate all the all the paper. Right. And I, I'm yet to be I'm looking forward to a day when there are fewer, fewer paper things around. But I mean, the whole trend of bookstores in general. I mean, so I was you know, uh, on on college campuses, right? Um, now bookstores have basically turned into um, swag shops um, and maybe some art supplies. Um, <laughs> you know, most, and, and, and the, the profit margins, you know, are, are pretty clear there. I mean, I think people sell, put in their stores what, what people will buy. And, and the fact is that, you know, I mean, I'm trying to think for myself how many times I've ordered new works of theater criticism or new place collections in a hard, you know, brick and mortar bookshop as opposed to an online source, especially with so many of the publishers that I go to regularly now giving like promotional, you know, dates. Like so so aside from those that I have author discounts at, you know, waiting for like, and now today, you know, like my son and I, like we're sort of obsessed with Verso, right? Because periodically it's like 60% off the Verso catalog and we're like there, you know, I'm kind of <laughs> pulling it all off. So, right, which which does have a certain kind of efficiency built into it. So I, I take your point, but, but on the other side, and I, I hear what Harvey is saying, on the other side, I remember as a kid, my parents were a member of the Play of the Month Club and what? we had, yeah, there used to be this thing called Play of the Month, and my parents had, um, and then I think my mom inherited the collection after the divorce, but there was like a bookshop, a bookshelf in which these really nice ha hardbound, um, you know, cloth book cover uh, plays, you know, circulated, and they were, and they, but they were popular, like regular people, so, you know, subscribed to this and got their Play of the Month, and so I remember reading you know, a handful of like, I read like some Neil Simon and like as a kid, because they were like, you know, the play of the month. Um, and they were beautiful books and they and you kind of had a set of them and they were really wonderful. And so, I mean, that day is not coming back, which I which I do have a certain nostalgia for and 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 miss. But but I think that, you know, grand grand gestures of keeping certain spaces alive, which I think is, you know, good on Lynn manuel and, and the other folks. Um, 
I, I do think all bookstores are kind of, you know, gradually phase, phasing away. This is so interesting. I, cause to, to my mind, I, I think I, I'm not just doing this to be contrary though. That make, <laughs> I guess that makes for good audio, but to my mind, I don't think that paper books are going to die out. Um, one, there's a there's a great historian um, at USC named Jakob Saul who came and gave a talk here, and he's a historian of libraries and accounting. So he studies early, you know, sort of Italian states and makes these arguments about how libraries were really this sort of state infrastructure to collect knowledge. Um, and he, I heard him say in a Q and A, and I think he's correct that the the technological alternatives to the paper book that you can hold with your hands are inferior to that technology. Um, And you can argue that it's going to get, you know, I don't know, tablets will get easier to use or text will be easier to identify. But I I think that paper printed books are going to be around forever. Um, And I also think that plays uniquely need some of those features. I just, I can't imagine a bunch of actors in rehearsal with their plays on tablets trying to figure out how to highlight or write marginalia in. Like there's something that the paper play um, does that allows you to take ownership of the text in a way that you need to feel like you're taking ownership of your role when you're an actor. Um, Yeah, but we're not talking about the the end of books. We're talking about the the end, the end of, of bookshops. Book oh well, sure. That's gonna. That's gonna. <laughs> okay. All right. Well. <laughs> well, but I, I just mean. I don't, I don't think. think I that, mean, I didn't. Maybe Harvey wait, was arguing not, something differently. I don't think books are going. You know, I mean, they're they're definitely going to become more. But you more think rarified, that, that, But but you think that play publishing is in trouble and going to get. I think play. No, not necessarily. I think the 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 distribution model is like the bookstore, like a place where there's. Um, an amount of books that are stocked waiting for people to come and select sure. them. That's that's the the distribution mechanism that I think is probably, yes. you know, gonna be gonna be done in, in another ten to twenty years. Be, yeah. but because because not enough people buy them, so it's hard to predict, right? So it's gonna be this like moving towards like print on demand or yeah. you know, buying them through 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 digital distribution. Yeah, I, yeah. I think I think if you go to an independent bookstore and if you look at the poetry section and the drama section, the poetry section is always bigger. I, I I think that's a good point of evidence for your interpretation. Uh, and and I feel like to connect conversation threads, a, a lot of the future of play publishing is going to be tied into copyright and copyright enforcement. Uh, so it's going to be. Uh, Samuel French or Concord and a new dramatist, you know, who can who will insist that you have to buy a certain number of play scripts, you know, at you know the per per play cost, uh, you know, in order to mount those plays. Uh, and the ones that are more uh, fiercely, you know, enforce copyright protections, you know, that will happen. Uh, but for just reading for fun, reading for pleasure, reading plays where there's a fair amount of spacing between words and the, the font size is a bit bigger, uh, and therefore it makes for a nicer beach read. Uh, I suspect that those plays will continue to be published, uh, but it's going to be more and more of the did it win an award? You know, was it this year's Pulitzer Prize winner? Um, that's going to be a factor. You know, what we might find is we might find that publishers that commit to publishing plays have a shorter print run, right? You know, so there's fewer plays actually being produced that are out there for the public to buy. But we may not notice it because people aren't buying them in, in print versions. So it's like as the numbers circulation count goes down, uh, well, for those who buy books, you know, in, in terms of play scripts, it may seem the same. Yeah, I also think like like boohooing the the tablet technology. Uh, uh, I think one in, one one invokes that at their peril, right? I mean, it's true that there are certain things about about marking up texts that are more difficult but you know if you think about the way the way if there's a if there's a demand for it i mean it's you know already it's hard to get my students to to read things on paper unless it's explicitly re- you know required like everybody just wants to have it on their computer um, and tablet and and i it's hard for me to imagine that in another 5 to 10 years they won't have come up with something that functions very much like mm-hmm. uh, a physical a physical paper copy Although there is, interestingly, there's a new book called Book Presence in a Digital Age um, 
that I just saw the the title for. I haven't looked into it very much, but um, that's edited by um, Kina Brillenberg-Worth, um, Kari Driscoll, and Jessica Pressman, who does a lot of interesting um, DH and literary stuff. Um, mm. And so I'm, I'm I wonder if they address some of this in in that in that book. It's an edited Listen. collection of essays, so it might be very interesting. Well, I'm going to place my bet on on paper book technology. When we record episode <laughs> 129 of this podcast, we will revisit this question. All right, okay. Well, you you heard one. it here first, folks. Right the <laughs> the the running 20 year bet of uh, Sarah Bay Jung versus you know Panel Camp and you know how long who 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 you know what what happens to the books? That, yes, by that by that point you'll be we'll be back to our conventional positions of discounting or elevating physical presence of performers. Um, go. <laughs> we're going to close out the episode first of 2019 um, with our drafts. Uh, regular listens to the listeners to the podcast know that our drafts are our thoughts and ideas in progress are not fully formed um, opinions. What's on our minds. I guess I'll start off with my draft, which has to do with a, a, a great book that I'm reading. Um, I ran out and got the paper copy from the library. Um, <laughs> from the library? Way, is... So you're not helping capitalism there, panel. <laughs> Wait, well, why would I be helping capitalism? Yeah, fair um, uh, but the, uh, this is not just a plug for a great book. Um, and the book is Richard Halpern's Eclipse of Action. It's It came out in 2017, Chicago University Press. It's a from from what I can tell, a dazzlingly original argument about the basically about the death of tragedy. Um, Halpern attributes the the quick attenuation of tragedy, that genre of theater, um, after the 18th century to the rise of capitalism. He argues that Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations basically emphasizes production at the expense of action, which had been a central category in ethics and pol- and. and and politics and uh, drama, of course, until that point. Um, but the reason I thought of this as a draft also was that it, it sort of harkens back to a conversation we had earlier about the value of peer review. Um, I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I, I was recently peer reviewed for an article and one of my readers suggested this book. And I've been working on this article um, for a long time. And uh, as part of the project that I'm working on, I was trying to sort of trace the concept of action from Montesquieu uh, past Adam Smith and into sort of early um, canonical social theorists like Marx and really didn't have any idea of how I was going to do that. And here is this amazing book that I wouldn't know about, um, I'm ashamed to say, unless one of my readers had said, you really should read this book. Um, And it really gave me a shot in the arm in terms of the larger project. So um, yay peer review and yay Richard Halpern's Eclipse of Action. Harvey, what's your draft? Yeah, so my draft goes back to this episode's announcements, <laughs> right? And and I was thinking about the George Jean Nathan Award, right? Which, as you noted, John Muse uh, won uh, for his great book, fantastic book. Uh, and when the announcement came out, uh, it, it had a description of what the jury process is for that for that award, and it's an award that is given out and decided upon by the chairs of the English departments from right. Yale. Princeton and <laughs> Cornell. Yes. Uh, and it made me think, well, you know, what does dramatic criticism mean these days within English departments, you know, in light of the fact that the drama major is less in vogue, um, English departments tend to be making fewer hires in the area of theater and performance studies, uh, certainly as theater departments have increased their hires in the area of theater and performance studies and criticism. Uh, so it just made me question <laughs> and then think about you know what does it mean to have certain key awards within our field uh, being determined uh, by the leaders of areas that are increasingly moving away from dramatic criticism or theater studies it's a good question it'll 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 keep those folks reading dramatic criticism which is which is a good thing but i will say again you know john muse's book is a great book and i really enjoyed reading it and i think it's definitely uh, worthy of of many many awards and not just that one absolutely sarah so my draft is is related to harvey's um uh because it is about apocalypse um <laughs> and uh I, the the I am reading, it's not really related to Harvey's, but 
Um, I am. Uh, I just want to. Uh, I'm really. I'm reading the 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 new um, special issue of ASAP, which is the Journal for the Association of the Study of the Arts of the Present. Um, and there is a special issue edited by Jessica Hurley and Dan Sinekin. I think I'm pronouncing that somewhat correctly. Um, on on apocalypse, and so it's a collection of really smart. Um, essays, many of them touching on questions of performance, um, performativity, um, uh, installation, art, presence, um, all talking about what the apocalypse means and why that um, as a concept, as an action, um, as, a, as an imaginary uh, is, is related to, to, to work and, and what role today and, and what role art has um, in those discussions. So um, there's a ton of great stuff in there, including a really wonderful um, uh, editors forum. This is something the journal does um, uh, frequently, if not every issue, um, which is where they they have a kind of invited editors forum of of different contributors to talk on a certain issue. One time I contributed. It was the um, they had a, a a section called "What is a Question," um, and this one is just looking at climate change, apocalypse, and the and the arts of the present. So it's 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 a great. Um, it's, a, it's just a great collection of stuff that I, I don't know that will pop up on the radar of, of folks in theater and performance studies, but has a lot to do with the folks working in posthumanism and animal studies and ecology and ecological criticism. Anyway, it's a great, a great collection that I'm really, it's, it has a lot of good stuff in it. Thank you, Sarah. Well, listeners, thank you for downloading and streaming. Harvey, Sarah, thank you as always for joining in the recording. Um, listeners, remember that the next episode, um, episode 30, we will be recording live in Providence at the meeting of the Conference for Research on Choreographic Interfaces. Where we will be debuting the podcast's signature dance moves. Yes. Right? Because what better place than than Cersei at at Brown? It's going to go viral. We're going to cross over. We're going to... And then we'll sue for copyright. Then we'll sue for copyright. Anyways, um, thank you listeners so much, and we will have another podcast for you at the end of February. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.